Several weeks ago, on the day before Christmas, the James Webb Telescope launched into space. The Webb Telescope is intended to replace the famous Hubble Telescope, which launched into space, this is actually shocking to me, April of 1990. Some of you feel old just hearing that over 30 years ago. The Hubble has since provided decades of new glimpses into our vast universe, and the James Webb Telescope promises to do the same. It'll cruise for about a month to orbit around the sun, roughly one million miles from Earth, and as it proceeds into space, it'll hopefully give us a greater understanding of just what is out there in this expanse that God has created. In order for that to happen, a number of things will have to have gone according to plan. According to the Washington Post, a a number of things must go right from the launch of the rocket that carries the telescope. According to Post reporter Joel Achenbach, he says, after it escapes Earth's gravity, it must begin opening up, blossoming into a functioning telescope. That starts with the deployment of the solar panels to make the whole thing work. Next comes the unfurling of a tennis court-sized expanse of multi-layered foil, the sun shield, akin to a giant umbrella, ideally more reliable than what you would get from a drugstore. Then the telescope must deploy 18 hexagonal gold-covered beryllium mirrors, which collectively act as a light bucket 21 feet across, designed to capture ancient light. What could go wrong? NASA actually has an answer to that question. This mission is vulnerable to, and therefore must avoid, 344 potential single-point failures, according to an independent review board. So there's 344 different ways this mission could go wrong, that if it fails at any one of those points, the whole thing fails. Obviously, meticulous preparations must be made before the telescope launched, as it did a couple weeks ago. So it was, and so it is, with the Church of Jesus Christ. This beginning of Acts is all about how the church is going to be launched forward, propelled forward, and as it does so, there are a number of, you call them pre-flight checks, that must be made. A number of things prepared meticulously before the church is going to launch out. So last week, we talked about some of the things that Um, The church needs, if it's going to be propelled forward, the church is going to need the power of the Holy Spirit. The church needs a clear commission from Jesus, then the church needs a vision of the ascended Lord. We talked about that last week. This week we're kind of continuing with the same theme a little bit of, of what final pieces need to be in place before the Spirit comes before the church launches. We'll ask it this way, because this week seems to focus on God's kind of sovereign uh, over... The seeing of the event, his meticulous preparations that God makes to prepare the church. So I'll ask the question this way, how does God sovereignly establish his church? How does God sovereignly establish his church as he oversees these events? His providential hand is seen in preparing the church and establishing it. So we'll ask, how does God sovereignly establish his church? And we'll find three answers to that question in the text. First... God establishes his church through prayerful waiting. Through prayerful waiting. As we find the disciples here, they are in, you could call it a a taxiing position on the tarmac, waiting to launch, to take off. But 
though they're waiting, they're not idle. They're not doing nothing. They're doing something as they're waiting. So we'll see that God establishes the church through prayerful waiting. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So where we are now in the story, Jesus has ascended. We learn here that he ascended from Mount Olivet. This mountain was a little bit away from Jerusalem. We see here it's a Sabbath day's journey away. And for us who are not familiar with the culture and the times, we'd ask, how far is that? And you could, in one sense, say it's a stone's throw. And that gives you no more information as to how far that is away. So it says a Sabbath day's journey. It appears that uh, measurement comes from Old Testament tradition. Numbers 35.5 says that a Levite city a city given to the Levites, could have pasture lands around it that extended 2,000 cubits in any direction. So those were kind of almost the Levitical dimension of a city. Outside, the pasture lands could go 2,000 cubits. And then also in the Old Testament, Exodus 16.29 says that on the Sabbath, Jews were not allowed to leave their city. They were to stay where they were. So combining those two thoughts, the tradition developed that you could not travel 2,000 cubits outside a city. If you exceeded that, you were going more than a Sabbath day's journey. So how far is 2,000 cubits? About two-thirds of a mile. That's the long way of getting there. That's about two-thirds of a mile. Any further than that exceeded a Sabbath day's journey. So they went back that two-thirds of a mile or so from the Mount of Olives, and they went to the upper room. Now, we are not entirely sure if this is the exact same upper room where they were, where they had the Last Supper before Jesus' crucifixion. They stayed in multiple rooms, it seems, or could have been all been the same room. We're not sure, but multiple rooms are talked about before uh, the Spirit came and after the crucifixion. They were headquartered in a room during the 40 days where Jesus appeared to them. It may be the room of the Last Supper. We're not sure. But I think what's important here, and we'll get to this later, is they're not in the temple, which I find interesting. That this upper room, this room where they are, has kind of become the headquarters for this group of people. And who are they gathered? Well, they're the apostles, not all of them. There's 11, and we'll get to that later as well. But they're gathered there with Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is mentioned here for the last time in Scripture, along with some of the women who are close disciples of Jesus, surely some of those who had seen him resurrected, saw the empty tomb, along with Jesus' brothers, which I've mentioned before, remains uh, to me to be one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, that his brothers worshipped him. I have four, and I know that if anybody's going to take you down a notch or two in this world, it'll be one of your brothers. And I also know what it would take for one of us to begin to worship the other. It would probably take nothing less than resurrection from the dead and ascension to God's right hand. Like, that is what it would take, right? 
So the fact that Jesus' brothers, who were recorded in Scripture as having doubted Jesus earlier, now are there awaiting the Spirit and following him and worshiping him, that is an historical proof that something significant happened, right? We call it the resurrection and ascension. And in total, there are about 120 people. Does that surprise you? Where are the thousands? Where are all the thousands of people that Jesus ministered to? Didn't he feed 5,000 in a day? I think there are more than 120 followers total of Jesus because 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that he appeared post-resurrection to around 500. So there's probably more than a total of 120, but not a lot. It seems to be a pretty small group, about half of our church gathered in that room. And this is what is going to be used to save the nations and convert thousands and millions, which shows just what the Lord can do with a small group of people. So whenever I hear somebody say, we can't do all that much for the nations, we're not that big, I would say, have you read the book of Acts? Much better to have a handful full of the Holy Spirit than hundreds doing their own thing. God will take these people, this small group, and reach the nations. And how's it going to happen? Well, first, just by waiting in prayer. Verse 14 says, All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. I would call this the necessary precondition for mission. Fully affirming God's sovereignty, that he is the one who even sends the Spirit to prompt people to pray. God is the one who does that, who sends the Spirit to prompt people to pray, and then he responds to prayer. And if you don't believe me about how that cycle works, read the end of Job where he tells Job to pray for his friends, and then he responds to Job's prayer to pray for his friends. Like All of that is initiated by God. Knowing that, I would still say that we, as people, need to be doing this if mission is going to happen. Like, mission is conditional upon the church's prayer. And I think if you were to study revival and missions throughout church history, what you would find is that in every case, it began with a group of people sitting in a room and praying for the Lord to come and the Lord to send them. This is how it starts. And that if you are going to be a missional church, if you're going to be a church on mission, you must be a church in prayer. And that you can actually assess a church's devotion to mission through the urgency and the level of their prayer. From our human perspective, I would say that the Spirit of God never moves a people without the people first crying to God in prayer. That's what we see all throughout Acts. Last week I mentioned that one of the great themes of Acts is just the spoken word. You're going to see sermons all throughout the book of Acts. What you will also see all throughout the book of Acts is prayer. That every major turning point and every sending, there's prayer first. So just for one example, Acts 13, 2 and 3. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. 
Barnabas and Saul, two of the best in the church, were sent off in the midst of prayer. It's how that happens. That's why I'm thankful for all those here at CBC who are devoted to prayer. And we have many. There are many who gather regularly on Tuesday evenings praying for the church. There are some of you who respond to in prayer to every prayer request that comes out and is emailed. There are people who are engaged in Sunday morning prayer ministry each week. That is how God moves. And if we want to be a church that is a church on mission, we must also be a church devoted to prayer. And how long were they praying? Well, disciples would have to wait. They didn't know it at the time. They didn't know how long they would have to wait. But it ended up being about ten days. And you could do the math. Pentecost, that celebration occurs 50 days or so after Passover. So when you think of Passover, right around then, Jesus crucified and resurrected, then he appears for 40 days to people. So you have, and then he ascends. Then he says, wait for the Spirit to come. Who's going to come on Pentecost? So you have a 10-day window. That's how long they're waiting and praying for the Spirit to come. And I emphasize waiting. That is what they're doing. They're, they're waiting. And this is what waiting looks like. For those of you who aren't good at waiting, don't know how to wait, if you're like me and like to do things immediately and want things to be done quickly, look at how the church waits and how they did wait at the start. And notice that waiting is not doing nothing. Waiting, in a Christian sense, to wait Christianly is to pray. In fact, I would call prayer aggressive waiting. Prayer is the act in which you aggressively wait, trusting in God that he will make good on the promises he has made. Prayer is an act of faith to stand back and not try and force things by your own hand, but to wait for God to move. Prayer is that ability to tie the kite to the string, to hold on to the spool, and then just wait for the Spirit to come and send it. That is what prayer is. It's aggressive waiting, and that's what they're doing. How are we at waiting? said, I'm not good at it. I need to grow in this. How about you? We talked in our Sunday school class this morning how hard it is to be praying for those who you love for days and years, even decades, and just waiting. Sometimes this is what the church must do. It is always what the church must do before God sends them, before the Spirit comes, to wait aggressively in prayer, trusting he'll be good. It's how he establishes a church. Second, after they're waiting patiently, God establishes the church through painful loss. Through painful loss. And here we have an account of the loss of Judas, who betrayed Jesus and the other disciples. And the question they're going to ask, or the question they probably were asking, is how does this fit in with God's plan? Still trying to wrap their head around, how could it be that one of us betrayed Jesus, betrayed us, and left us? How do we reconcile that? And we see here that God will still establish his church through painful loss. Verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And said... 
Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And here I think the author, Luke, gives a parenthetical note that Peter didn't speak. He says, Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Akeldamah, that is, field of blood. Then back to Peter, for it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and... Let another take his office. So as they are gathered, waiting, aggressively praying, Peter stands up and takes the lead as kind of the head of the apostles, it seems. And taking the lead, he addresses the proverbial elephant in the room. As you look around the table, you'll notice there are no longer 12. There are 11 of us. One of us has betrayed Jesus, selling him out, guiding those who arrested it to him for money. He records the fallout for Judas. And Luke records that and notes that he failed to purchase with his own money, and his inner organs burst out of his stomach, and the field was called the field of blood. Maybe for two reasons. One, because Judas died a bloody death there, and two, because the field was purchased with blood money. Just as an aside, some of you who know your Bibles well might know that there's an account of Judas's death and the purchase of this field. It's in Matthew 27. For time, I won't read the whole thing. But in that Matthew section, Matthew 27, 3 through 10, it says that Judas maybe wasn't the one who bought the field, that actually he returned the money out of guilt, that the chief priests bought the field, and that Judas died by hanging himself. So it appears there are maybe two discrepancies here between Luke's account and Matthew's account, possibly. Who purchased the field? Was it the chief priest or was it Judas? And then how did Judas die? Was it by hanging himself or by his innards being burst open? And I think you can actually reconcile both accounts from different perspectives. In that the chief priest bought the field with Judas's money and in his name. So in one sense, both Judas and the priest purchased that field and it became known as Judas's field, that field of blood. And it is very possible, as gruesome and gory as this is, that he both hanged himself and his guts burst out. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that word splankna and how it's a wonderful term for your guts or your insides. It's used here as well. It has a spiritual meaning and a very biological meaning. But the point is to record really a tragic and horrific loss and I think you can hear the pain in Peter's voice. He says, he was one of us. He says in verse 17, he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. How would they be processing that? How would they be making sense of that? Probably asking all the same questions that many of us have asked when we knew people 
who were among us, who are part of us, who seem to be doing ministry with us, who were bought in, sold out for the sake of following Jesus. They were with us, then all of a sudden they aren't. And they made a tragic end. They abandoned Jesus. They walk away from the church. And what happened to them? How did that happen? Did God know that was going to happen? We have all those same kind of questions and wondering, where did that happen? How did it go wrong? And I think there, there's some commentators who speculate this. Maybe not. I don't know. I'll throw this out for yourself so you can deliberate. There's some who think that maybe even the apostles were wondering about their own witness and credibility as one of them had left, and as the whole church was standing around saying, the apostles still have authority? I don't know. But there will be all sorts of questions that come up through one of them departing as they look at the empty seat around the table. And just about all of us are familiar with that empty seat. And if you aren't, Remain in the church long enough, and you will be. You will watch those who are a part of us leave. And you'll have to wrestle with that. And Peter helps the whole group wrestle with it by affirming this was not a surprise to God. And he is still in control. Peter will remind them that this is something that even Scripture itself had foreseen. That the Spirit spoke through King David. The two authors of Scripture, the human author, the divine author, the Spirit and David, both actually spoke about this in the Psalms. And he'll go reference two Psalms, quoting them and applying them to Judas's situation. So first he'll quote Psalm 69.25, which says, May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. And that is a psalm written by King David, which is a psalm of judgment upon the enemies of the king. The psalm calls for God to judge his enemies and the enemies of Israel, for God to bring judgment by wiping out their camp, emptying them. So this psalm has become a general prophecy for how God will someday deal with all of his enemies. And then here Peter applies it specifically to Judas, says fulfilled especially in Judas, the enemy of the King Jesus Christ, whose camp, his field, is laid desolate along with his place as an apostle. God has judged him, and his camp has been emptied. Peter then quotes another psalm, Psalm 109.8, which says, May his days be few, may another take his office. And it's another psalm where David prays and cries out against his enemies, probably a military leader, a military enemy, and David is saying, may his position be wiped out. He's praying for a replacement for that person. Lord, I pray there be a vacancy in that person's seat. Essentially, calling God, wipe out my enemy. Again, a psalm of judgment against the enemy of God's king. A general psalm here applied specifically to Judas. May another take his office. May his seat be empty. May another take it. The point is, Peter is affirming, this was planned. This isn't a surprise. Don't be concerned. God knew. In fact, the entire death and crucifixion of Jesus was not a surprise to God or plan B. It was carried out by responsible individuals, but it was ordained by God. Peter's going to say in the next chapter, Acts 2.38, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There's 
Peter speaking to the priests, saying, this is the definite plan of God, according to his foreknowledge, and you're responsible for doing it. Acts 4, 27-28, the church, of, church will pray to God, saying, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So there they're praying to God, the whole church praying to God, saying, God, your hand did this. You predestined this crucifixion. This is all part of your plan, carried out by these people. And he's going to say the same thing, Peter's saying the same thing, about Judas. This is all part of your plan. We, we know that you're sovereign, God. We know this is not an accident. And I think this is a comfort for us. Because no matter how wicked, no matter what kind of rebellion we see, we know that God has not abandoned control of his church, that he's not left powerless. And there's no human rebellion that can throw off his plan. And no departure from the church will ever derail the church. And again, I say this because if you watch, pay attention, you're going to see departures. Like this has become, we've talked about it before, a recent trend in evangelicalism. There's a whole lot of conversation about the word deconstruction. Because all sorts of people are looking at the church in the world and they're looking at the evangelical church. We don't like how that, what that word means anymore in our context or how it's been used and abused. And they're tired of the church and all of its failings. And what they're doing is deconstructing their faith. And some of that is good if you are throwing off false beliefs and rebuilding true beliefs and true faith in the scriptures, that sort of thing actually has to happen. We call it reformation, right? But there's also a lot of deconstructing, meaning I'm throwing off everything I believed and going a different way, and we're seeing a lot of it. So I'm telling you as a church, here's a comforting word. That somebody who was close on the inside, who knew Jesus, who had a position of authority, they can depart from the faith. And you would think it might threaten the church. I mean, it's only so big. It's 120 people. A major leader like that, having such a gory end, bringing shame and disrepute, what is going to happen in the church? And here Peter affirms and God affirms, don't worry. God has not abandoned his people. The church still continues on and the spirit will be at work. As hard as it is, and I know this, as personally painful as it is to watch people that you looked up to, people that you loved and still love, people who seem to so closely walk with the Lord, depart, and sometimes tragically so, we have a comfort and an affirmation that God builds his church through painful loss. And lastly, in verses 21 through 26, he will, establish his, his, he will establish his church through chosen people. Through chosen people. When people depart, when things seem out of control, when numbers are lacking, when it might seem that God's people are all are not all that significant or important, we see that God still chooses people. 
to build his church and bring salvation to the world. He establishes his church through chosen people. Verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So Peter read that the psalm stated, Let another take his office, that will be fulfilled here and now. It will need to be fulfilled by another. So empowered by the Spirit in some ways, or at least with the Holy Spirit overseeing God, determining the outcome, they choose a replacement to round out the twelve. But notice something I think is interesting here. They begin by establishing requirements for who this person has to be. And for whatever reason, they are very specific. He has to be a male. I'm not going to go into, or I'm not even sure I know all the reasons why, but that was clear from the text, clear from their, the, their process. First requirement, has to be a male among the 12 apostles. And second, notice, he has to be a witness. Not just any old witness, a true witness who has been there from the beginning, from the beginning of Jesus' ministry to the end, from his baptism under John to the ascension, somebody who saw all of it, which I find fascinating that a requirement for whoever this person is going to be must be a true witness who saw it. Why? It's because the foundation of the church, the foundation of this movement, would be in truth. It would be in history. That what they're doing is telling a historical story that they could witness, that they would say, I saw this with my own two eyes. I touched him. So whoever is going to be part of this group has to be a credible witness. Most of these apostles are going to die for their testimony, die for the speech that they give about Jesus Christ. So this must, must be a person who saw Jesus and was so convinced in their core that this actually truly happened that they will not waver from it. Somebody who has witnessed it. And again, it shows us that the church is rooted in history. That this movement is not a myth or fable. There are several different ways you can start a faith or religious movement. You can build it off of charismatic people, and that's been done. People are so compelling and inspiring that they just tend to follow or get followers. You can build a movement on spiritual practices, and you can sell it as something that will be healthy for you if you follow this, and these spiritual practices, these routines, will, will make you a more healthy, whole person. You can start religious movements, and religious movements have been started any of those ways. That is not how Christianity is going to spread. It is not a myth. It is not a set of practices that will make you healthy. It is not something that's built off of charismatic people. It is something that's grounded in history and historical fact, and that's how we're doing this. Somebody who can truly and accurately record this Jesus person lived and died, was crucified and buried and resurrected and ascended. That we are not telling lies, and they have to be careful about their accounting because the more incredible the tale the more solid the witness needs to be. All sorts of people may say that Christianity is built on myths and tales. The 
that this Jesus stuff, it's nice and good, but these are nice stories in the end. You can say that about Christianity and believe differently, and in one sense, you're free to do so, but you cannot, with any credibility, say that's how Christianity sees itself. From the very beginning, the Christian faith has always seen itself as a faith rooted in historical fact. That this Jesus lived and taught, did miracles, died, resurrected. That is what this church will be founded upon. The historical reality and the witness to Jesus Christ. So needed somebody to verify that truth. And they narrow it down to two men, Joseph Barsabbas or Matthias. I've always wondered, or at least since I started looking at this last week, how did Joseph feel? <laughs> Dang, so close. They carefully considered the necessary requirements. They did their due diligence in preparing, and then they trusted God's sovereignty in the end both human responsibility and God's sovereignty at play in the selection of a new apostle. And how did they do it? They cast lots. So this is an Old Testament practice. And you see it throughout the Old Testament. It is Casting lots was used to determine the sacrificial goat on the Day of Atonement. Casting lots was used for distributing land to people and tribes in Numbers and Joshua. Uh, lots were cast to choose King Saul. Lots were cast by others to determine who on Jonah's ship was causing the storm. So it was a known practice, this casting lots. And what was it? Well, stones or wood or even bones maybe would be placed in a bag or cup and there'd be markings on them and they'd shake it around, roll it out, and basically Yahtzee. That's how this, and whatever the markings say would determine uh, the result. So maybe here they had Joseph's name on one and Matthias on the other and then Trevor came out Heads up first, or I'm not sure. But that's generally how casting lots worked. And you might say, is this gambling? Well, they're not doing it for money, so I don't think so. Is it a game of chance? It's not how they saw it. This casting lots process, again, first, preceded by careful selection of two men, the final choice then, leaving it up to God and his meticulous providence over the event. It comes from an understanding of Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The apostles trusted that this, even the turning up of one stone or another, was in the Lord's sovereign hands. They did this because of the fundamental conviction that God was in control. So the question naturally comes, is that how we should make decisions? Like, our next elders and deacons here, should we just throw everybody's name in a hat and pull one out and cast lots for them? Say, God did it. There are Christian groups who have done that throughout history. I I don't think that's how we ought to operate. Again, notice they used careful requirements first. They they, they did their due diligence in making a couple selections. Then they used a means of discernment that was approved and used throughout the Old Testament, so it's not a a new thing they made up. This is is used by priests and an Old Testament institution. And something else that's kind of important, lots are never seen again in the rest of Scripture. This is the last time we see anybody cast lots. 
I think it marks the shift to a new way of doing things. This is the last time lots are used, and what's going to happen next? The Holy Spirit will come. So how do we discern God's sovereign will going forward? We have the Spirit and the Word. We do not have to guess at God's will through casting of lots. We have God's Spirit and His Word. This is the last kind of act of the Old Covenant before a shift happens. A shift to a new era. And I think that shift to a new era is highlighted by the fact that they rounded out the twelve. And consider this. Not only is this the last time we hear of Mary, it's the last time we see Lot's cast, it's the last time we ever hear about Matthias. Tell me all you know about Matthias, the great and wonderful twelfth apostle. We know nothing about him. Luke doesn't tell us anything about him from here on out because it's not Luke's intention to give a biographical story about Matthias. In fact, the person selected isn't, in the end, all that important. The reason this story is in Scripture, the reason that Luke felt this was important to record is because the, the fact that they felt they needed a 12th apostle. It is about the 12th apostle being joined to that group. That is why this story is here. It's not about Matthias. It's about the 12. You say, why 12? Why not like 13 apostles? Wouldn't that be more? Make it a baker's dozen. How about 50 apostles? Isn't more apostles better? In our pragmatic minds, that seems to make sense. Why not the full 120? Like, why this 12? Apparently, the number 12 has some type of important significance. And what could that possibly be? Go back to the beginning of the story. How were God's people first formed? How was the nation of Israel formed? Twelve representative heads, twelve tribes. There's something significant about that number. Jesus says in Luke 22, 28-30, he promised this to his disciples, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. There's a continuity there that these twelve will rule with Jesus over the whole nation of God's people. Is the fulfillment of the twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve representative heads. This is pictured in Revelation 21, this continuity where the new Jerusalem appears. It's the end of Revelation. The new Jerusalem, the new capital city of Israel appears. And what does it look like? The bride of Christ, the church. The capital city is depicted as a church, and this New city is metaphorically described in this way. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. So the gates around the city, 12 tribes, the sons of Israel, inscribed. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This image of the new people of God, or the recreated, perfected people of God, founded on the twelve apostles, uh, 
surrounded with, perimetered with the 12 names of the 12 tribes, it's all this metaphorical picture saying this is the full people of God. 12 tribes, 12 apostles. It's a continuity between these two people and peoples. And what it's saying basically is that this church is, these 120 people gathered here by adding this 12th person, it is a continuity of all that had preceded. That God's people, his chosen nation, his holy people, has not ended, but has now continued on in and through the church of Jesus Christ, represented by his 12 apostles. That's why there's such language of continuity in Old and New Testaments. In fact, if you want, I've said this before, just go ahead and rip out that page of your Bible. This is the only page I'll allow you to rip out. You know, the one that separates the two. It's one story. That's why the church is referred to in such Israel-like terms. Galatians 6 calls the church the Israel of God. Christians will be, are called children of Abraham in Galatians 3.7. Christians are called the true circumcision in Philippians 3.3. 3. A holy temple in Ephesians 2.21. A kingdom and priests in Revelation 1.6. A holy nation in 1 Peter 2.9. And a chosen people in Colossians 3.12. Those are all covenant terms for God's holy people. And it's saying the church is that. Not replacing Israel, not doing away with Israel, but fulfilling and continuing Israel as all peoples, ethnic Israelites and Gentiles, come into the one people of God. These are the chosen people. And by sovereignly choosing a twelfth apostle, God was in effect saying, these are my chosen people, just as Israel has been my chosen people, and I will reach the nations through them, and they will be a light. Again, it's reforming, reconstituting the people of God, not in, I think this is important, not in the temple, which was about to be destroyed, but in this upper room where the Holy Spirit would come upon them. I get really excited about that. Why? Because it means God has chosen this people as his to be a light to the nations. And if you are here and are in Christ, you are one of them, one of us, a chosen person like Matthias. So as I mentioned earlier, there are a lot of people who are frustrated with the church, and I understand that. A lot of people are really worried about evangelicals in America. I don't even know if I can be part of the church anymore without... Twisted it's all become. And we come to Acts and we find that the church of Jesus Christ is still God's only chosen means for saving the world. There are no other peoples. There are no other institutions. There are no other chosen people that God will use to be a light. It is the church founded on the twelve tribes and apostles the prophets of God. That's why I love the church. It's no greater people. So we asked in the beginning, how does God sovereignly establish his church? And we have our answer through prayerful waiting, through painful loss, through chosen people. And next week, we'll see them begin to launch. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning that you did not abandon your work. 
You did not abandon your chosen people. You did not abandon Israel. All your promises are true. You did not abandon the church, your chosen people. You are bringing it all to one glorious people in the end with representatives from every tribe and nation and tongue and people. Bound together by the Spirit, unity in your Son, praising your name. And Lord, we look forward to that day. We are waiting for that day prayerfully. And Lord, in the meantime, we pray and know that you will keep building your church. Help us to be a faithful part of that, enduring to the end. By your grace we pray. Amen.